1 Samuel 25, verse 1, opens up kind of sad. It says, now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, so David sent ten young men. David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us and we did them no harm. They missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who's David? Who's the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. <laughs> and David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 men remained with the baggage. This is boys at their worst. This is men operating in what our culture now calls today toxic masculinity. Now, I don't agree with the whole concept of toxic masculinity because I believe that now just our culture believes masculinity in general is toxic. And I don't sign off on that at all. I just want to preface everything by saying this. I'm glad to be a man. I'm glad to be a man's man. I'm glad that I have testosterone coursing through my body right now. I make no apologies for being male and being masculine and being a man. Having said that, it does come with some unique temptations, like kicking a box of Kleenex off the pulpit from time to time. It comes with its own inherent set of weaknesses, and I recognize that we need the Holy Spirit, that our masculinity doesn't define us, but the Lord Jesus Christ defines us. And Tonight, when we go through this passage, I know that David is a man after God's own heart. The Bible has already said from the day of his anointing by Samuel that the Spirit rushed upon him. So David's a spiritual man. He's a believer, but he's also a warrior. His, his military exploits are unparalleled in the Old Testament. Maybe Joshua might come close to David, but David's are more detailed, and we find out that God raised him up to put down an enemy that was coming against the people of God. David was a man of bloodshed. You just need to accept that because that's what the Bible says. 
And yet the, the fact that he was a warrior who shed a lot of blood and a lot of wars doesn't take away from, from the reality that he was a man after God's own heart. But this man after God's own heart proves that he is, though anointed and led by the Spirit most of his days, he is susceptible to weaknesses and He's part of the story tonight when I talk to you about two jerks and a jewel. So let's start with the bigger jerk because he's easier to expose. His name is Nabal. And the Bible says this. I'm not being irreverent. The Bible says that he's a fool. And so I want to talk in the first couple of verses, the first handful of verses about him, just give you a sketch of who he is. And it starts off by saying in verse number two that the man and man, who we'll find out his name in a second, he, he was a businessman in Carmel. Now watch this. He was very rich, and his wealth was defined by his livestock enterprise. He had 3,000 sheep, and he had 1,000 goats. Now, he's not wicked because he's rich, because wealth is not wicked. Wealth is amoral. It is not immoral or moral. It is amoral, amoral. It's what we do with wealth or what it does to us that determines whether wealth is good or bad. The, the man whose name is Nabal, he was a very, very wealthy man. But I know a lot of wealthy people both in Scripture and also in my experience in the kingdom, a lot of wealthy people love Jesus and they use that wealth for the glory of God. So we're not picking on Nabal because he's rich. We're picking on him a little bit because he's a jerk. The Bible describes him as a fool. He has a terrible witness. Look in verse number three. The Bible says the man's name was Nabal. And by the way, the meaning of that name in the Hebrew indicates one who is foolish. So he is, by the biblical definition, a fool. And his wife name, wife's name is Abigail. Now, it says about Abigail that she was discerning. I mean, she's wise. She's got the mind of Christ, so to speak. She's beautiful. She was physically attractive. But in contrast, Nabal was harsh and he was badly behaved. This is where I miss my King James because it uses a great word that none of us ever use, but I like the way it sounds. It says he's churlish. It just sounds like something nasty. He's churlish. That's Nabal. And he's happened. The best thing about Nabal is that he married way out of his league. Now, you might think, if she's discerning, why did she marry Nabal? But you got to remember, in the ancient Near East, all the marriages were arranged. And apparently, Abigail had either a dad who was in great need or a dad who saw it as an opportunity because Nabal was probably much older and he was already a successful businessman. And the marriage was arranged. Abigail's dad got the dowry and Abigail got the loser. And that's the way it worked many times. And Abigail wasn't the first woman to be married off to a guy that was far beneath her. And she wasn't the last woman that married uh, in a way that didn't exactly edify her. So Nabal has a terrible testimony that is revealed in Scripture. Now, we see here that Nabal gets this perfect opportunity to be a blessing with all the wealth that he has. Let me read it to you in verses 4 through 8. David heard in the wilderness, remember David's on the run from Saul, he's still living in the wilderness, that Nabal was shearing his sheep. I'll explain that significance in a moment. So David sent 10 young men, 10 of David's warriors, his servants, and David gives them the message to relay to Nabal, and it's this, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name, and thus shall you greet him, Peace be to you, peace be to your house, peace be to all that you have. It's shalom, three times, shalom cubed, shalom, shalom, shalom. It's, it's a, just a general greeting, but it's pronouncing peace, and it's an honorable way 
to open up, I guess, a conversation. And in verse 7, David gives them this message. Tell Nabal that David says, I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds, Nabal, have been with us. All season long, we did them no harm. They missed nothing. And all the time, they were in Carmel. And ask your young man, ask your own young men. If you don't believe me, ask your shepherds. They'll tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come to you on a feast day. Please, give whatever you have at your hand to your servants and to your son David. So let me give you a little context here. Sheep shearing season, that's a tongue tire. Sheep shearing season was a time where the flocks were sheared, that wool would be taken, it would be sold or it would be used. It was a time also that was accompanied by feasting because it was usually a, an increase of income season. And so the common uh, practice of that day is anybody that helped the owner of the sheep take care of the sheep for the previous season, they could get rewarded during the time of shearing. It was kind of like the end of the season, like an end of the year bonus. And so David's living in the wilderness close to Nabal's territory. And as he's living in the wilderness, he's offering protection to Nabal's shepherds, to Nabal's flocks. So Nabal has actually benefited from David's service. Now there was no contract, there was no law that said Nabal had to honor David, but it was a common courtesy. So what does David do? At the end of the year, David says, hey guys, they're shearing the sheep, they're throwing a feast. Mm, I can smell the barbecue from here. Why don't you go up and ask Nabal, hey, since it's feast time, we've done this for you all year. Could you spare a little food? Let us celebrate with you. So it's not an unreasonable request. And if Nabal had been a, better, a man of better character, he would have obliged David with a custom. He would have said, of course, David, thank you for serving. Come, eat and drink with us. Come, sit around our table. But we already know that's not what happened because look at his tactless words. Listen to this testimony of this foolish man. Here's how Nabal responds. Who's David? Who is the son of Jesse? By the way, the second question reveals that he knows the answer to the first question. David, the son of Jesse, everybody in Israel knew David. He had songs written about him. So Nabal is not saying, yeah, I don't know who this is. What he's saying is, you mean nothing to me. He says, he goes on, there's many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. That's way of Nabal's way of saying, yeah, we know what you did against Saul. We know you're a hunted man. I don't have to acknowledge you. And then he gets real selfish. This reveals the heart of Nabal. Notice how many times he uses the word my. Shall I take my bread? Shall I take my water, my meat that I've killed from my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? And then later in verse 14, Nabal's own servant says this about him. Behold, Abigail, David sent messengers, messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. So this whole scene, it reads kind of calm in our English Bible, but Nabal, the foolish man, was railing. That, that is a word in the Hebrew that indicates like a really vociferous, energized, uh, just indignant, insulting, just rejection of David. So it wasn't a, yeah, I don't have time for it. It was intentionally framed up to slight David. By the way, one of the reasons why I can call Nabal a fool is you don't mess with David. 
David kills giants. David destroys Philistines. David is renowned for being a warrior, and Nabal, like many wealthy, arrogant, successful people, Nabal feels completely insulated and aloof from reality because he is in the upper echelon of his society, and so he feels like he can say whatever he wants to say and nobody's going to touch him. Um, this would not be the case, at least in the response of David. So here's the first boy behaving badly. It is Nabal the fool. And by the way, this is the last speech that he ever makes. It's the first and the last. You don't hear anything else from Nabal, not because David's going to kill him, but one higher than David is going to kill him. We'll come to that in a moment. So let's go. Forgive me. You know I love King David. I am blessed by his testimony. But in this passage... For a little bit, he's a jerk. So David is the hothead. Here comes David the hothead. Why did he become a hothead? Because he's getting his ego bruised. Look in verse number 12. David's young men turn away from Nabal, and they come back and told David all of it. So imagine that unfortunate assignment. Your David's servants that are going up to kind of facilitate an opportunity to set up a feast for um, all of David's men for the hard work that they've been doing. And instead of coming back with an invitation to the feast, which would have just been an amazing time for all of them, these two young guys have to come back and say, um, David, we're not actually invited to the party. And David would probably say, what are you talking about? We've served Nabal all year long. And they have to say, yeah, David, he kind of went off on you. He kind of insulted you. And then one might poke the other in the ribs and say, yeah, you're softening it. He didn't kind of insult you, David. He said that you mean nothing. He even brought up your daddy's name. And David, he went off, and then he says that you're a fugitive from Saul, and he doesn't know anything about you, and he's not doing anything because everything that he has belongs to him, and he's not giving you squat. Um... Ladies, let me let you in in a secret while the men aren't in the room. A lot of very capable, competent men have really fragile egos. You say, well, Jeff, tell us something we don't know. We know all about that. Well, it's something I don't only want you to know. It's something I want you to understand. I don't want you to just see it and, and recognize that it's in existence. I want you to understand that even a man of God like David can go through an experience where his pride is kicked so hard and his ego. Um, psychologists, both secular and Christian, will tell you that in relationships, men prefer to be respected and women prefer to be loved. And I share this in marriage counseling from time to time, and I actually have a really good book that if you're curious about it, you can get it. It's called Love and Respect. You can get it on Amazon, and it'll help both men and women understand each other because women would much rather prefer to be loved and men, if they only could have one, they want to be respected. Men, if they could choose between love and respect and only get one, most men will say, yeah, I would much rather be respected. David has just taken a big hit on the respect that he thought he had earned by acting nobly and upright with Nabal and so look what happens in verse 13. A bruised ego will often, in a moment of weakness, lead to kindled anger in the heart of a man. And it says, this is David's response. 
He looks at 600 men. He ends up only taking 400. But his immediate response is, every single one of you guys, lock and load. We're about to go. Grab your sword. Nabal has blown it. And he goes on to say, the scriptures go on to say, every single one of them strapped on a sword. So it wasn't just David that was upset. All of these guys were mad because they had served well, they had done well, and they had all been disrespected and slighted. So 400 of these guys go with David, 200 of them stay behind to watch over the, the stuff that was back home. Let me, let me also give you some of this. I want you to put yourself in David's sandals for a moment. The first verse of the chapter says, Samuel died. Samuel was David's hero. Samuel was David's mentor. David hadn't seen Samuel in a very long time because Saul was hunting him. David knew that part of David's assignment was to honor Saul who was trying to kill David. So David can't fight Saul. He can't go to Samuel's funeral. The the scriptures doesn't say that he didn't attend, but we assume that if he had gone to the funeral, Saul's right there. It's the greatest prophet in Israel at that time, the last judge. So the, all of Israel gathers for the funeral, and David can't even go to his best friends, his mentor's funeral. So David's feeling in that confined place where a lot of men get, and it's not a happy place where we don't have any control, we don't have any say-so, we're being forced to do things that don't feel right, we're, we're trapped, we're suffocated, we've got somebody over us that that, that doesn't know what they're doing and they're, they don't have our best interest at heart. So David can't fight Saul. He can't fight circumstance, but he might be able to fight Nabal. And so he chooses the only battle where he can be proactive, he can be focused, and he can be successful. Listen, I know that's a lot of psychology, but I, want you, I, I just think it's a great opportunity to recognize it's not just David flying off the handle because David's already shown himself to be able to restrain himself. He, and he's going to show that in other times after this event, that David has the spiritual uh, fruit of temperance or self-control in his life. But here's a weak moment. And so David just looks around, and in essence... He's going up with 400 armed men to kill one dude and whoever, you know, Nabal's servants are. Uh, it's like, you know, trying to, to kill a spider with, you know, a grenade. It's just a little bit of, of overreach. But that's what anger does. Anger always takes a situation from level one to level 10. And so that's what David's doing here. And now, Verses 14 through 17 start introducing us to the beauty. The only beauty in this whole chapter comes from Abigail. She is the fruit-bearing woman of God. She is such an intercessor in this passage. So look at what happens. Um, David's on his way up, and when you're moving with 400 armed men, armed angry men, it's going to generate a little bit of stir in the community. And so look at what happens. One of the young men, one of Nabal's servants, told Abigail, Nabal's wife, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet these men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. And we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we were with them. They were a wall to us both night and day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, the servant says to Abigail, know this and consider what you should do. 
For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. (laughs) And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Now, let's just break this down because this is some interesting stuff. Um, Nabal, I don't even think he tried to hide it, but if he did, he was so just pathetically unsuccessful. Everybody knew Nabal was foolish, worthless, and a loudmouth jerk. His reputation preceded him. He, it, you know, it's, he's one of those egos that before he ever walked in the room, everybody knew he was there because it went out before him. And so his own servants, and what's amazing to me is this. If you happen to be a jerk, you might want to hear this. Everybody in his life God was pouring grace to Nabal that he never responded to because he had a wife that we're about to find out was trying to protect him. He had servants that were trying to protect him. Everybody knew he was a jerk. Everybody knew it, but Nabal would never repent, but he's got all of these people trying to work for his good. That's God's grace, by the way. Um, But the servant was smart because who did he go to? He didn't go to Nabal. He didn't go to Nabal and say, hey, Nabal, ooh, that speech you gave yesterday, it has gotten back to David, and you better pack your bags and go. The servant had seen enough of Abigail's discernment and wisdom and grace and favor that he said, we've got to get to her. She'll know what to do. So he bypasses the protocol of going straight to his boss, and he goes to the boss's wife, and he says, Abigail, David has been insulted by your worthless husband and uh, we are looking at the clock and we've just got a few hours before all of the men in the household are dead. And by the way, David would testify that later. He didn't just go to kill Nabal, but he was going to kill all the employees too. That's what anger does, by the way. Guys, listen, um, the, the number one stronghold that I've had to be delivered from um, as a believer, is um, anger. I, I, in my Christian life, 25 years, I have rarely given vent to my anger, but just because we don't vent it doesn't mean it's not there. You know, a volcano's got lava even before it erupts. And so when it's in there and it's not dealt with, it's just a matter of time before a circumstance pokes a hole in it and it comes out. And so David had this stuff going on inside of him, and now it's coming out, and he's about to wreak havoc. So look at Abigail. I love this about her. She becomes the mediator. This is where this woman is going to lay it all on the line for a husband who, by the testimony of Scripture, is a worthless fool. There's so much grace in this. As she mediates, as she stands between him and David and speaks hope and life and reason. Ladies, I want you to hear this. God has created women to have incredible opportunity to influence, to influence husbands, to influence children, to influence men, but it is not the way that our culture says it should be done. Our culture dictates to the modern woman that she must become masculine in order to have influence and power. That's not the way God designs it. I want to tell you, Abigail is a boss who runs the show and she never loses her God-given identity. So let's watch this together. Let's read through this. First of all, I want you to see her strength 
as it's revealed in, in the clarity that she has to take action. So she's not just smart, she's a woman of action. Verse 18, Abigail made haste. She took 200 loaves, two skins of wine, five sheep already prepared, five whatevers of parched grain, and 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, and put, him, put all of that in the ancient equivalent of an SUV. She laid them on donkeys. And she says to the young men, like, this is a woman who is in charge here. And she has a plan. Go before me. I'm coming after you. She did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men come down toward her, and she met them. Now, this has got like some intensity. This is like high drama. So Abigail didn't fall into a puddle and cry. Guys, I, I don't want to send the wrong message here, but she didn't spend three hours praying. She knew time was of the essence. Sometimes you pray as you're doing what you need to do. And so she's a smart woman. What did David originally ask for? Food. She, 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 oh, okay, so he wanted food. Let's give him food. And so she just gets into action, gets everybody moving, gets this feast. She's got meat. She's got wine. She's got dessert. She's got all of it, and it's big. It's, it's not like a little, you know, goodie bag. This is a big, big meal. And she gets all the servants to get the motorcade going, and she's like, start heading that direction. And here's my guess. This is a guess. This is not in the Bible. I'm thinking, well, she's leading everything. Why did she not go on before the men? Let me tell you what I think. I don't have Bible on it, but what I think. I think she went and got her looks on. I do. I believe that with my heart because she came behind them. I think she got herself together because she's about to stand in the presence of an angry king. And the Bible already told us in verse 3 that she is a good-looking woman. And listen, this is not fleshly sexual manipulation. But what's about to happen here would be hard for any angry man to resist. What, what's about to happen is this beautiful, gracious, godly woman is about to humble herself in the presence of an enraged David. And by the way, if you, if you doubt her strategy, <clears throat> it works. She's very successful, as we're about to find out. And so we're going to get into verses we haven't read yet. So she's got this clarity of action. Power and femininity are not this little wimpy, mealy-mouthed, indecisive, oh, I'm just a fragile little woman of God. And, you know, it's, we, we've, got to, we've got to strike a balance based on Scripture about what a woman of God looks like. Because the culture says she has to act like a man, sound like a man, move like a man, grunt like a man, scratch like a man. It's just silly. And then religion says that she's just got to be a doormat. And that's not biblical femininity either. That's not what it means to operate in biblical womanhood. Abigail has strength and power and influence and grace and charm and femininity. So let's take a look at this stuff in action. She comes to David, look in verse number 23, and you're going to see this humility in her heart. When Abigail saw David, she hurried. She got down from the donkey. Look at this. She fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet. And this is ingenious. She says, on me alone, my Lord. On me alone be the guilt. 
Please, speaking of herself in the third person, let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Now, this to me is ingenious, and I'm saying this as a man. I got me and 400 of my buddies. We've been pretty frustrated. We're hungry. We've been insulted. And we got this idiot up on the ranch that has crossed the line with us. It's been a while since we've killed anybody. We're warriors. We're just going to go up and we're going to hand him his backside. We're just going to do it. And then all of a sudden, this beautiful woman comes with a motorcade of food and she's so gracious and humble and she immediately starts interceding. She says, let all your anger come on me. Let all of the guilt be upon me. I'm your servant. David, everything you're feeling, here I am. Just take it out on me. She is a shrewd woman because she knows David's reputation is the opposite of her husband. And she's going to tell in a few moments everything she knows about David. This woman has studied up on David and his character and his heart and his honor. And she knows that he's not going to pull out a sword and take care of her and, and you know, execute her there on the spot. But the key to all of this is her humility. She's not bowing up on David. She's not falling apart, begging, crying, getting hysterical. She's in full control of herself and full control of the situation. And I'm just going to say it without apology. I love that about her. I love the fact that her strength is pouring forth from her without her losing her identity or becoming something other than who she is. Ladies, I just want to say this. Um, I believe that our culture both in the Christian context of it and then in the secular context of it. I believe it's harder on women than it is on men. I'm not a bleeding heart liberal, so you know, don't misinterpret what I'm saying. I'm, I'm just observational. I think our culture is harder on women. I think every culture that is in existence is harder on women than it is on men. Therefore, it requires a little bit more proactive thinking on your part. You can either resent the fact that it's harder on you and you can play the victim, or you can actually trust the God who lives inside of you in the person of the Holy Spirit to give you victory over a, a culture and a worldview that seeks to suppress you. You can either buy into the bitterness of the culture, or you can just say, yeah, the culture is jacked up, but I'm a daughter of God. I've got God Almighty living inside of me, and I'm not anybody's victim. And Abigail literally takes action on this stuff and begins to own the moment. So look how reasonable she is too. Look in verses 25 through 31. Again, her strength is in her clarity of action. It's in her humility of heart. And it's in her honesty of reasoning. Because she's about to tell David some truthful things. First of all, <laughs> she gets honest about her husband. This is delicate, but let's just let it say what it says. She says, let not my Lord, speaking of David in a royal term, let not my little L Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. And his name again indicates kind of worthless or foolish. Nabal is his name and foolishness or folly is with him. But David, I your servant did not see the young men of my Lord. I didn't see your young men when they came, those that you sent. Now, immediately, we can get caught up in a 21st century Western paradigm. We're thinking, hey, that's illegal. She just spoke terribly of her husband to another man. And let me tell you what's very clear here. Um, 
Abigail wisely was willing to sacrifice his reputation in order to save his life. Um, he didn't, we didn't have the ability, or she didn't have the ability there to protect his reputation because everybody knew what kind of guy Nabal was. But she literally is putting her neck on the line to save his life. She had to tell the truth about his character and his reputation, and she did so, but she's doing so in her attempt to keep an enraged warrior from making his way up the driveway and taking care of business against her husband. But look at what she also does. She gets honest about what David was about to do. This is spirit-filled boldness here. She says, and it's, I'll just read so beautifully. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, as our God lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to you be as Nabal. And let this present, and she's referring to the food there, let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because you, my Lord, David, you are fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you as long as you shall live. Let me tell you what she's doing here. She is confronting David. There is a conf confrontation here. This is a moment of confrontation where she's got to get David to come out of his angry emotion and start thinking according to the identity that God has given him. And so she's saying to him, now David, you've restrained your hand from shedding blood against Saul. That's what she's referring to earlier in the verses. She's saying, you've kept your hand from becoming guilty of blood that shouldn't be uh, shed David, I'm just appealing to you right now. Here's how we would say it. David, you're far too noble for this. You don't want to go there. You, David, this is beneath you. You don't want to do this. But in doing so, she's gently confronting David that the course of action he's taking is not wise. It's inconsistent with who he is. Ladies, I don't have time to run this rabbit trail, but I'm, I promise you this. If you will study... 1 Samuel chapter 25 and ask God to give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation on how to be a woman of God that handles situations where either your husband or some other man in your life, maybe a boss, maybe a, a young man who's a, uh, a child that you've raised, if you will ask God to give you the spirit of wisdom and re revelation about how to handle an unreasonable man you will learn from Abigail. If I'm a dude and I'm learning from this, I know, ladies, you can learn it because you understand better the dynamics of male weakness because oftentimes it's cost you. You've had to deal with it before. Abigail is in a situation where she's operating in wisdom and humility. She's exposing the reality of her husband's worthless character, but she's also gently confronting David and saying to him, um, David, you don't want to do this. So go a little bit further, verses 29 through 31. She points them in a better direction. She says, if men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. She's making allusion there for David killing Goliath, God killing Goliath through David's simple trust. 
And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he's spoken concerning you and has appointed you the prince over Israel, my Lord shall then have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation for himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. You know what she just did? She's saying, David, 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 get your eyes back on what God has said over your life. David, get your, get your heart realigned with your destiny. David, the Lord has always fought your battles. If you'll continue to operate in integrity, David, if you'll trust God to fight your battles, then your life is going to be bound up in the bundle of the living and the heart of the Lord. The Lord's going to take care of all of this, David. And David, the Lord will take care of all of your enemies. She gets a little prophetic there. And she reminds David, and I mean, this hasn't really been spoken publicly, but now we're getting a hint that even Abigail, representing the general population of Israel, everybody knows David's the future king now. And she's reminding him of his destiny. She calls him the prince, because if you spoke kingship over somebody who wasn't the actual king at that time, it could be viewed as treason. So she's being wise. She's measuring her words. And she says, you're the prince of Israel. In other words, David, we know you're next in line. You're going to be on the throne. And David, when you ascend to the throne, you don't want to look back at this moment and have your conscience stricken that you acted hastily. You let your emotions get the best of you. David, you don't want this on your conscience. Goodness gracious. This is so much better. Ladies, don't get mad at me. Let me just say, this is so much better than the stereotypical, nagging, screeching, hysterical, kind of response that a woman in her weakness can give. If we're talking about male weakness, let's go ahead and say women can be weak too. Nagging is not a gift of the Spirit. How many of you have ever said, I nagged my husband into beauty and glory as a man? It doesn't work. Nagging is the most counterproductive thing a woman can do in a relationship with her husband or any other man. It just doesn't work. Men have a natural, God-given, like um, a nagging dome nothing penetrates it just doesn't it bounces off and we're just like hey you're nagging me again it's still not working now let me just say that because she's not here my wife does not nag she's never been a nagger it's never happened and so just so you understand I'm not saying that my wife does that she actually doesn't if she did nag I probably wouldn't preach this point so boldly but a lot of women can either get hysterical they can lose their ever-loving minds they can scream they can just fall apart Abigail's not doing that she actually is a spirit-controlled woman, at least the Old Testament version of whatever that looks like, and, and she is owning it, and she's reasoning with David. You want to get through to a man? Find the pathway of reason. Men like facts. They like logic. They like for things to make sense. How many of you have heard the expression that women are like spaghetti and men are like waffles? You know what that means? Men think logically. These are very big generalizations, but logically, compartmentally, we like for things to be in order. And for women, guys, you need to know this. Everything touches everything. It's like spaghetti. So whatever happened early in the morning is connected to what's happening when you walk in the door at night. There is no... It's all together, right? Ladies, help me. I'm not lying, am I? Okay, come on. Men are like, you're bringing strange things to our ears today, Jeff. What is this? 
That's another message for a different time. But Abigail puts her waffle moment on. She's speaking to him in waffle ease, and it works. It totally works. Look down at verses 39 through 42. So look at what happens. Uh, am I in the right verses? No, I'm not. Yeah, let's get to the last thing. Verses 32 through 42. Here's where you see the favor of God, the highly favored Abigail right here. And I got to finish. Abigail first receives favor from David. David says to Abigail after her speech, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you, sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion. Blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. What he's saying there is, thank you for stopping me from taking matters into my own hands. He says, for surely as, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to me truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. So that tells you right there what the battle strategy was. The battle strategy is go out, go up there and wipe out every man. David says, you wouldn't give me any of the food. How about I just take over your whole ranch? And he was going to wipe out everybody. That's his anger. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. So David said, what you've brought me is what I was asking for in the first place. So David is now no longer operating a jerk. He has come back to who he is in the Lord. How did that happen? Because a woman of God spoke strongly and precisely and reasonably to him in the moment of his weakness. And that's why I say she's a boss. That's why I say she, out of all that was happening in this chapter, God's on the throne, but humanly speaking, Abigail is owning the whole chapter, 1 Samuel 25. And so, verses 36 through 38. By the way, in verse 35, David does says something that no man in ancient uh, times in the Near East would ever say. He says, I have obeyed your voice. Look at that. David says, I'm going to submit myself to spiritual reason and wisdom, even though the culture tells me I should never listen to a woman. Even though it's coming from a woman, I can recognize it's Abigail's voice, but it's God's accent. And David says, I'm going to obey. I'm going to uh, grant you your petition. Nabal won't die. So she gets favor with King David, and then she has to go back home. Now's the time to fall apart, by the way. Now it, the, the, she has secured it. If she was ever going to cry or get hysterical, now she does it because she just won. She doesn't do it. It doesn't say that, but now would have been the time, not in the conflict, but after. But look at what happens. She goes back home. It says, Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king, and Nabal's heart was merry within him. He was very drunk. Nabal do what Nabal do, amen? So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. She's even wise about when to spring the bad news on her husband. Know your man, ladies. Got to read him. Know when the right time. If he's a drunk glutton at the table at night, probably wait till the morning before you deliver the bad news. Verse 37, in the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, he sobered up. His wife told him these things. Watch this. And his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. <laughs> Not a Hallmark card there. This is, watch this. 
she waited until the morning. She says, Nabal, you have no idea how close you came to dying at the hand of David. You insulted him, word got back to him. He was, while you were out doing whatever you were doing yesterday, I was making the feast that you should have given him. And I got the servants together and we took it out there and I interceded for you. And I reasoned with David. He was two miles away and you were that close to death. But Nabal, God gave me favor with David and he went back home with the feast, but you were that close to dying. And the Bible says that Nabal, it sounds like most scholars think it was some form of a stroke. He had a stroke and for 10 days he was incapacitated. Now just let your Bible say what it says. Then it says, and the Lord struck him and he died. We don't like that because we like, we like happy Jesus. We, we, we like Jesus that is taking little kids up in his lap and tossing their hair and everything. But I just want to remind you what the scripture says. The wages of sin is death. And Nabal had been given grace after grace after grace after grace. And Nabal had lifted up. He didn't lift up his hand against David, but he lifted up his words, the sword of his words against David. And David was God's man. And God, when he saw David refuse, David refused to fight his own battles. God said, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I'm going to take care of the battles that you leave with me. Word to the wise, God's a lot better at revenge than you are. Leave it alone. Say, all the time? All the time. Get yourself out of harm's way or dangerous way if you need to be, but revenge never belongs to you. Not revenge with your words, not revenge with your um, actions, certainly not physical violence. It's just not ours to do. When you leave your enemies to God, the best thing that can happen is that they can repent before the Lord and experience the mercy of God and become a brother or a sister in Christ. That's actually really what God would love to see happen, but they have a choice in the matter. And if they don't repent, I can promise you the scales get balanced. God will take care of all your enemies. And so let me go on with the verses. Can you throw that um, last slide? I can't remember. Oh, no. Let's go to the next slide. So Nabal's dead. I don't think Abigail spent a lot of time crying over that. Verse 39 through 42, when David heard that Nabal was dead, I kind of like this, he said, well, bless God. <laughs> That's what he said. He said, bless be the Lord who has avenged the insult that I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. David is like, oh, this is awesome. I'm not guilty of an unjust crime and God killed the guy that he wouldn't let me kill. This is great. But wait, there's more. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. You've got to love her. She didn't, she, I'm still humble, still saying. It's, it's an ancient way of saying, I'm certainly not worthy to be married to the future king of Israel. I'm not even worthy to wash his feet. I really don't even feel worthy to wash his servants' feet. It's such humility. 
And so verse 42 says, Abigail hurried. And see, she's not weeping and mourning. She's like, I get to marry David. Remember, the Bible says David's good looking. I mean, he's awesome. Ladies, who wouldn't want to be married to the dude? He's a warrior. He's a poet. He's a musician. He's all, I mean, I'm a little jealous, to be honest with you. So she hurries and mounts a donkey and five of her young women, she gets her, gets her maids of honor with her and she follows the messengers of David and became his wife. This is almost the end of the story. So look how it plays out. Nabal gets the grave. David gets the girl. And Abigail, for the first time in her life, life gets a gentleman. God took the thorn of Nabal out of Abigail, and all Abigail did, she actually honored an dishonorable man. She honored Nabal. It's amazing what, how we magnetize ourselves to the favor of God when we honor those that won't honor us, when we endure hard relationships as unto the Lord when we retain our Christ-likeness, when somebody's acting very unchrist-like towards us, it, it opens up the windows of heaven and it just calls for blessing to be poured out on us. And I, I, when I look at what happens to her, I'm thinking to myself, thank you, Lord, for delivering her and this probably doesn't register well with anybody, everybody in the room, but I'm just going with the kind of the, the fragrance that the scripture paints it with. It actually feels like a, a really big win for Abigail. And David's happy because he honored the Lord. Abigail's happy because she honored not only the Lord, but she honored David and she honored her husband. And God stepped in and says, you did right, David. At the end, you got close there some, but you did right. Abigail, A plus girl, you, you killed it. It was a home run awesome. Nabal, pack your bags. You're done. Nabal goes off into Never Never Land. Abigail doesn't even have time to stress. She, she marries the future king of Israel. But here's the best part, and I'm done with this. You leave 1 Samuel 25, and you kind of work your way to many, many years later as the history of David's life is being given, and you end up in 1 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. And here's what you find. These are the son of David, sons of David who were born to him in Hebron. And it gives a bunch of sons' names, and it says this, and Daniel was born by Abigail, the Carmelite. There came a time where Abigail, who had sacrificed and endured so much, held her first child in her arms. David was king by this time, so she's holding a prince in her arms. And you know what she named him? Daniel. You know what Daniel means? God is my judge. She left God to be the judge over her life, and God said, I proclaim favor on you. And when you, every time you look in your little boy's eyes, I want you to remember that I have judged your situation I've rendered a verdict in your favor. You're now a queen. You're now a mom. You're now fully delivered from that former life under Nabal. I love that testimony. Listen to me. It doesn't always work out 
to that degree of perfection. But I will tell you this. If you will wait out your storm, no matter what it is, maybe you feel like Abigail and trapped in a situation or relationship that is less than perfect. Honor the Lord and wait. Honor the Lord and wait. If you're surrounded by men behaving badly, ask God to give you the spirit of wisdom and influence so that through grace, not screaming, nagging, and all of the generalized, stereotypical weaknesses that you could respond with as a woman. Instead, take ownership of it as a daughter of God and say, I'm not going to let my weakest emotion own this moment. I'm going to partner with the Holy Spirit and I am going to act as Jesus would act. By the way, Jesus had all authority and power and glory. He was the most humble, gracious, merciful, and meek person ever. And so if we've got Jesus and we've got conflict, then we learn how to act like Jesus in conflict. For Abigail, it resulted in a brand new chapter in what would become a glorious story of her being the wife of the king who held a prince in her arms. Sound good? All right, let's stand to our feet tonight. Next Wednesday, there is no Wednesday evening service because of Thanksgiving the following day. I believe we'll pick up on the life of David the following Wednesday. Um, so I hope you'll come back that day, all right? Father, in the name of Jesus, help us, help us, help us because we can't do any of what Abigail did in our flesh. We already know that. We confess it. Holy Spirit, we need you in our homes, in our marriages, in any difficult relationship. We need you as men who don't understand women, as women who don't get men. Lord, we need you. Help us to interact with each other in deference, humility, grace, love, and spirit-controlled responses in moments of conflict and confrontation. Take care of our enemies, Lord. We commit right now to leave them with you. We don't want to have enemies, but Lord, if they call us their enemy, then we're going to leave them with you. Help us to bless them, pray for them, and love them. Help us to do that, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.